Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Russian conductor who has spent the last few years dividing his time between his two positions as chief conductor in Oslo and Liverpool. In 2021, he starts as music director of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. It is a great pleasure to welcome Vasily Petrenko. Vasily, what a wonderful pleasure to speak to you today. Hi, Michael. It's a pleasure to hear you. Um, this is going to be the first podcast where um, earlier on I let out that I'm a Manchester United fan and I, I read that you're a Liverpool fan, so let's hope this doesn't get too feisty at some point soon. Well, we will see. We will see. The time will show. <laughs> um, with everybody, I go right back to the beginning, Vasily, and I ask, um, when did music first enter your life? Music first entered into my life, actually, when I was still inside my mom. Ah, okay. Because uh, that's what she told me, at least, uh, mm. that she suddenly, she's not, uh, she was not a professional musician, but she was keen to music as, I guess, most of the Soviet girls who, uh, who were educated in the music schools and who kept music as the passion of their lives. Mm. So she entered uh, the program for relatively young female members of society where you could get a very cheap subscription series in uh, Leningrad Philharmonic at the time. Mm. So when uh, I was still growing inside her, <laughs> she was visiting, she was visiting many of the concerts in the Philharmonic. She said that she remembered at least uh, seven or eight of them while I was listening to it through, through her ears. Mm. And uh, then obviously uh, the more meaningful <laughs> attempts to music I made, I think I, w I was almost like four years old uh, when I was brought to the choir in the local House of Pioneers, as they were calling, mm. in the Soviet uh, Union. And uh, in such places, uh, very young children, they were forming a choir and the choir then was singing. The teacher by then, or the chorus master by then, uh, listened to me and said, no chance, this guy has no music ears. <laughs> and my parents, uh, they brought me, they insisted and brought me almost like in rebellion against this opinion mm. into the different house of pioneers and into the different place. And then uh, I started to sing and it was, successful uh, in the choir so they brought me to the very special music school after that so the first encounters were very early mm. and i wonder whether you could tell me um i spoke to christian machalero uh, the other day who was brought up in uh, communist romania and also i've had many conversations with andres nelsons who was brought up in latvia during those times both of them said that they thought that their musical education um, in the Soviet era was wonderful. Uh, we, we, didn't, we didn't talk at all about the rest of it, but we just talked about the musical education. What would you say about your experiences with um, Soviet and communist music education? You know, I'm extremely grateful for the Soviet musical education because it really gave so much, so mm. much more than I think any of uh, the Western education, which I know. I mean, may, maybe there are some other examples. Uh, it brings you all the broad range of music disciplines, including musicology, including very deep harmonic knowledge, solfeggio, and all the other stuff. Mm. 
it also gives you all the normal disciplines. So we were study, studying math or literacy or writing or anything at the, at the same level as many other people. It was very busy, six mm. days a week. Uh, and at least four days a week was a choir for two hours where we were singing. And those six days a week were from nine in the morning until uh, four for the group lessons. And then after it were private lessons for piano or for singing or for anything, mm. all paid by government, obviously. So, you know, we haven't paid for anything there. Yeah, yeah. On Sundays, most of the Sundays, there were concerts of the choir in the different uh, concert venues or in the, in the school. So, no, we always were working very hard. On the positive side, you learn really a lot. You have a very, very broad education. You also understand from a very early age that uh, only the big effort can bring a reward. Okay. There's yeah. no reward without effort. Yeah. And also you learn that even by doing this big effort, you, you may not be rewarded. So you basically learn some rules of the life, which I think in many Western schools are... Uh, omitted. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we were very, very busy. We, from the very beginning, because in the school where I was studied, uh, we had only 25 pupils from age of seven. And then by the end, when we were 18, uh, no more than eight were able to finish the school. So every year, the guys with the lowest scoring points, they were eliminated into the different schools. So it's almost like Olympic system. Oh, wow. You this constant pressure, competition, and understanding, which you know you lose your happy childhood in some ways. Mm. For me, to play two or three hours on Sunday with my friends uh, in in the yard of we lived in sleeping blocks in the yard of those sleeping blocks was the biggest reward. And mm. I'm not always was able to do so. So basically, it was constant study, constant big push. However, it gives you understanding from the very early age of how hard you have to work to get yes. success. Yeah. You mentioned that you were singing in a choir and I, you just mentioned the piano. What, was the piano your, your instrument uh, or did you have other instruments? Piano was the main instrument at the time until uh, age of 11 or 12 when you start to study conducting, obviously, choir yeah. conducting at first. Yeah. But I also, I would say I touched the violin. Right. <laughs> I, I have played a bit of clarinet, a bit of flute, and I've tried many other instruments uh, just to know how they work. Yeah. And for me, I was always curious how they, how they work. And still now, yeah. you know, sometime, uh, the, the, one of the latest big projects here in uh, Liverpool uh, regarding instruments were this set of bells. Yes, they're wonderful, aren't they? Yeah. They're incredible. And it's... The Forever Bells, um, totally down to one man, Graham. The idea is to yeah. one man. However, I have to say that support yeah. we've got from the from the community, support we've got from the public, yes, to be able to cast them all was incredible. Yeah, and this is thanks to all the all the public, thanks to all the visitors of the concerts and the other people for their generosity. Mm. And when, uh, especially the biggest one was casted, uh, to me uh, that was so interesting and so peculiar. Uh, how you can play that and mm -hmm. with different mallet at a different place on the bell it, it makes very different sound and it's constantly you know there's so many things we can learn on the day-by-day -day basis I always was very curious about it and that's why I tried most of the instruments. Mm. Going back to Graham uh, I had a wonderful uh, 10 minutes uh, in, in Liverpool when I was there conducting 
um, I was doing a corn gold overture and I asked for a specific effect on the cymbals and he gave me the effect. And then in the break, he came in and said, you, you do know that there are 11 different ways I can play the cymbal. And he gave me, basically gave me a cymbal lesson on how to play cymbals, which was just fascinating. He said, well, you know, please stop, stop me if I'm boring you. I said, no, I, I want to know more. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you need people like that in orchestras that, uh, that can educate, inform, and, and in, in that case with the bells, it's a legacy that will be there forever. Talking about the cymbals, I once uh, was witnessing the audition for especially the cymbals in St. Petersburg. Mm. And that was fascinating to see. Uh, I think there was something like 65 or 70 people who came, especially for, there, there's, there's like separate position for the cymbal player in the orchestra there in the system. And uh, they all <laughs> were trying with this or that pair, doing this or that sound according to the wish of the committee. Mm. I was just watching that or listening to it. Uh, it was very fascinating actually to see all that. Um, so conducting has entered your life, as you said, 11 or 12. Um, you eventually went on to conservatoire and who would be your, your main teachers who would have uh, informed you and taught you? And, and what did they teach you? How were you taught conducting? Well, uh, First of all, the main teacher probably uh, was Ravil Martinov. Uh, he's not known on the West. Uh, he's relatively known uh, in uh, Russia, in Soviet Union. Mm. He was the same generation as uh, Janssons or Temerkanov, roughly about the same age. Mm. Uh, but he had very heavy asthma. Okay. And uh, quite uh, quite a few of bad habits and because of that he was not always able to travel and his health restrictions uh, and but he he was I think ingenious musician and mm. uh, his orchestras how they were sounding was something very unique I think of the time uh, the main lesson from him uh, probably was that uh, if everything is right in your mind, the hands will follow. Mm. So primarily, especially when you study, primarily it's what is in your mind. What, how, do you, how clean is what you want inside mm. yourself? And then if it is very clear, and if it is obviously close to what a composer wants, if you know that inside yourself, then the hands will follow. A lot of conductors, young conductors, are uh, obsessed with the hand technique. Mm -hmm. It is important. However, more important is your intellectual basis and your knowledge of what do you want to say, what the composer wanted to say. And uh, also the lessons like a baton does not make the sound, the sound <laughs> made by the musicians. Yeah. So you can't be arrogant. You have to be respectful and whichever you are, whatever you ask the musicians and you have your own view, it's still not you who playing the music. You should inspire, you should not dictate. Mm. And th there's quite narrow differences, and especially in Soviet Union, which was largely the very dictatorship relation country in terms of classical music. It's changing now, but it was a very, very strict, strong hand on top of the musicians, and they were mm. used to it. To have that approach, it was quite different. Yes. Obviously, yeah. I visited a lot of uh, lessons by Ilya Musin, the famous and legendary yes. teacher. Uh, 
But by the time when I was passing the exams in the conservatory, he had something like 32 or 36 pupils. Right. And uh, that was way too much. So you had not so many chances to be on the podium. But I think uh, the main education, the benefit of education uh, was and still is that you're able to get to the real orchestra. As a yeah. student, every week uh, we have this orchestra which, is, which has a very difficult work and very difficult life, I guess, because <laughs> of that. It's the people who always rehearse. So from Monday to Sunday with one day off, they always rehearse from 10 to 2. Wow. And the concerts are only at the end of semester. So they are somewhere in December or somewhere in June. Wow. That's when the exams take place. And they, the main purpose of this orchestra is for training of conductors. And that makes a huge difference. You know, nothing can replace uh, this experience coming in front of the orchestra, especially when you're young and all the musicians, uh, well, most of them were like twice older than you. Yeah, yeah. And all of them were teaching before you and were seeing before you the very famous maestros who are now much older and who are now in the best positions. But by then, maybe 10, 15 years ago, they were the same youngsters as you are at the mm. moment. So they have this critical eye and you immediately feel and see it. So how to convince those people who played made the Beethoven symphony probably 500 times? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as you've said, you know, it's probably for the last 20 years for, you know, possibly a thousand different students. Yeah, that's difficult. <laughs> so and that, that gives you a very, very good school, to yeah. be honest. And yeah. uh, I, I think, so far as I know, this system with the real orcs is very expensive, obviously. Mm. Uh, and this system is exists in Moscow, St. Petersburg. Uh, they now doing that in Helsinki for a few years and yes. in Stockholm. That's why we have so many great Finnish conductors uh, in, 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 in current years. Mm. And uh, there are bits of orchestra in Vienna. That's why in, in Vienna there's also quite a good school for conductors. Uh, but not many other places. Simply no. because you have to spend, imagine you're paying 60 or 70 people salaries every every month yeah. for, and uh, there's no income from ticket sales, there's nothing. What were the similarities, or were there any similarities, between uh, Ravel Martinov and Ilya Musin? I mean, as you said, Ma Martinov was very much about your mental approach, and and then things will follow from there. Whereas, you know, Martin seemed to talk a lot about stick technique with Musin. Were they com were they different, completely different teachers, or were the, did they have any similarities? Uh, they were from the different uh, schools. Uh, yeah. You know, for. I think it's probably not so many people on the West know the story that at the beginning there were two guys. Uh, the first guy who was considering the conducting us the school in the right. conducting school in the conservatory was Gauk, right. a very famous old school conductor. But then we're talking about 40s or 50s, right. so around the world. Then there were two relatively new talented teachers. One was Rabinovich and another was Musin. Mm. And they were, I think, equally gifted. 
uh, us teachers, and they share the best students of the time. Rabinovich, sadly, he died very, very early. So Musin then absorbed the best students also from Rabinovich, collected them, and nurtured them into the future territories. Mm. But those two camps, at the beginning, they were quite different. Right. So I think Rabinovich camp was uh, that we have to first teach the mental side. Yeah. Yeah. And Musin, uh, he always was in a position that I can teach anyone for the, for the technique. And yeah. then it's upon of the individual to implement his mental skills or not. So uh, they both have benefits and I think yeah. disaggregates. So those skills were different. What happens later is that because Musin lived a very long life and he was a great teacher, he became the only one whom everybody knows. Mm. And that's a little bit the same as about any conductor, to be honest. It's, it's always a myth. Well, that conductors lives very long. I always argue with it because I think only those who live long, they became famous. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's very true. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, I then noticed that other names, as you're now starting to leave conservatory, I would imagine, or around this time, you then had masterclasses with Marity Janssens or uh, Yuri Tamakanov, Esa Pekasalanin. For example, was it just a case for you at this stage to just absorb as much information as possible that they were giving you advice and and uh, tips? Well, I would say it's a little bit more broad. Uh, no, first of all, I'm extremely lucky. I think in two things in in that uh, age. Uh, first of all, that I was we were always able to get to almost any rehearsal in Philharmonic or in Mariinsky. Yeah. So I've seen, I don't know, hundreds of rehearsals of Temer Kanofer or Maris Janssons at that time because he was a second conductor in Philharmonic. I also have seen decent amount of rehearsals of Gergiev mm. and other guest conductors at the time. And uh, I, I'm not sure if it stays the same, but by then, uh, as a student, you have free access there, yeah. as a student of con conservatoire. And that gave me so much material. Uh, so much, so many things to think about, and also so much experience. Not yeah. necessary that uh, I always, I was, was trying to pick something up from every conductor. Some I never was following one rule model, but I was always trying to see as many people and think uh, what from this or that person can be implemented to my own individuality. So what can I absorb from this or that uh, yeah. great conductor? But it also gives you a very clear experience of what not to do. Yes. And this is important. So we were very lucky at the time of doing that. And the second thing which I think we were extremely lucky is that the gate was open. The Iron Gate was open and I was able to go west and absorb some of the Western culture. Mm. Why it was Esapeka uh, and Sneme Yarvi is because it's the closest countries to St. Petersburg. I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm originally from the very average family, I will put it this way, in Soviet Union. Mm. So uh, I never had a budget in that year to travel further. And uh, in Finland, that was, that's just about maybe four hours uh, by the bus from St. Petersburg and the same for Estonia. So 
nowhere the choices of geography. Actually. But, but as it as it happens, you've got Yorma Panela in one direction and Naomi Yervi in the other direction. So you, yeah, you were lucky in where you were living that you were right in the middle between two wonderful teachers. Well, I think this region actually, the Northern Europe and Scandinavia and uh, Saint Petersburg, probably Russia in in whole. Mm. Uh, especially nowadays and potentially in upcoming years will be some kind of bastions for culture because mm. i think we are now coming into the very gloomy and difficult times uh regarding culture in general and classical music as a result of the current virus and as a result of following economic depression Mm. Those countries, the Scandinavian countries, maybe Germany uh, and Russia, they have more will and more attention to the classical music. And they support, on the government level, they support the classical music much more than, for instance, in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. So for that, uh, being in this territory geographically was very lucky as well. But, you know, the things which I learned from those two great uh, people from Esapeka or from Nemi, from Esapeka mainly, he showed me the way how to not make things more complicated than they need to be. Yes. You know, yeah. the thing like, for instance, the, as a student, you think about the Rite of Spring as a very complex score and very difficult to conduct, which it is, in mm. a way. But uh, he told me that, you know, it's a, it's a dance. And when you think about it as a dance and you don't make it more complicated technically, then it helps you. Mm. With Neme, I think, to me, honestly, uh, his ability of making the music flow and phrasing in the first Vienna school, in the classical repertoire of first Vienna school in Beethoven or Schubert or Weber, yeah. uh, it's something also very, very special. I don't think anybody else uh, was able so far to do that flow and that melodic way uh, inside sometime rather motto uh, music. So for, for him, uh, that's also something very special and very unique. And actually the whole family, you know, they're incredible yes. dynasty conductors. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so early you get positions at St. Petersburg Opera and Ballet, uh, Chief Conductor of the State, uh, State Academy of St. Petersburg. But then in 2002, uh, a big competition, uh, catechist competition, and you win it. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I took part in quite a few competitions, actually. Mm. I think it built over seven or eight, probably. I won some diplomas, uh, some prizes in mm. various uh, of them, uh, failed in others, <laughs> which I think is also a natural process. I found, uh, you know, in most of the competitions uh, for conductors, you cannot come and watch the others before you participate. Yes. And uh, the thing is, I found very rewarding also to watch all my colleagues after I was kicked out from the competition. Right. right. And, uh, the experience you, you gain is, is again, uh, to me, was, was incredible how many things you can learn from here and there. Mm. So I've been in a few, won a few prizes and, and things, but uh, what was great uh, about Catechist competition, I hope it will survive in the future, mm. uh, what was great about it is the prize, because by then the prize was uh, nearly 40 concerts all around the Europe with different orchestras, mainly in Spain, obviously, yeah. but also some concerts in England, some concerts in other countries, even in Vienna, and that's what helps you enormously. 
because yeah. you you if you're winning a competition and you get prizes like uh, two concerts with a local orchestra who organize a competition it might establish your relation with this orchestra it may also give you a bit more recognition but if the price is so many concerts that yeah. helps you for the career quite strongly and uh, of course all the orchestras who were offering those concerts they were playing very safe so you either given the very standard choice repertoire or some kind of uh, odd concerts where you do like school concerts sometimes. Yeah, but they're hard oh, though, aren't they? They're very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, they're very difficult in different things. It's mm. about motivation. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but once you are there, at least it's up to you. Yes. To convince the people. But otherwise, you don't have a chance. What's interesting is I spoke to Ryan Bancroft in an earlier episode who won the Malco competition. And he had a very interesting line, which I'll tell you and I'll see whether you agree. Um, he said that you shouldn't enter these competitions without knowing that if you win it, it's going to be really hard work afterwards because of the amount of the invitations that you get. You said you had 40 invitations from 40 orchestras. And there'll be others who weren't part of the prize, I'm sure, as well, who then go, well, hey, this guy's won the catechist competition. Would you agree with that? And, uh, and say, you know, it's, it's suddenly the workload shifts and you really are working hard. Uh, you know, I was working hard even before that. So right. you know, by then, I already had so many things to do. I've started this, uh, those jobs. Uh, the first job I got, I was 18 years old. Right. And uh, a lot of repertoire was thrown on me. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was there were there was a couple of years when I was learning. I think like twelve or fourteen different operas and okay. conducting them, yeah. which is for young conductor a lot. Mm. Uh, but uh, and I always enjoyed it. Uh, what uh, about the? You have to be prepared for the hard work. That's true. Mm. No, I, I I remember this moment very very clear. There's another person who actually played quite a good big role uh, in my face <laughs> in, in my career uh, is uh, Sir Neville Mariner okay yeah who, who have been a wonderful man and by then when I won the competition I didn't know him before uh, he he was a president of the jury in mm. Kadakes and I remember this moment when there was a prize giving and they gave the prizes and the first thing I did and it was my very honest uh, decision. Uh, I came to him and asked Sir Neville, "What's next? Imagine you you were just given you know the big medal and some cash and a huge prize. You worked very hard. You know this this competition in particular is really hard because there's a six rounds and wow. each round is uh, next day. Yeah. And some of the pieces are very hard contemporary music." Some of them is for chamber orchestra. The, the, the later you go, you do some vocal music. I mean, it's hard. It's a yeah. lot of repertoire. But after I won it, I asked him, so what's next? And I think that's probably one of the few moments when I have seen him surprised. Mm. So uh, he then said, well, I will think about what I can do for you. And he's spoken with uh, Stephen Wright, who was by then uh, the chief of IMG England yeah. in London. And uh, Stephen, I think he started to send scouts to my different concerts mm. to see how it's going. That's um, probably only because uh, Sir Neville gave him this information and kind of recommendation, probably. 
so, and then once uh, the agency sees that you're doing the concerts and the orchestra are re-inviting you, then the orchestra thinks that that's a probably good potential here and they start to sign you. I, I think there's two points which, which you need to think when you're going to competition. Uh, I always was coming with, first of all, approach that unlikely I will win. I will mm-hmm. try as best as I can and even probably beyond that. However, you should not be really confident then that you will win. And also related to it that I always felt that this is a great experience for me as for a young conductor. Uh, all the all the thing about the competition. And the secondary that it is just the first step. It is yeah. important step, but this is just the first step. And actually, nowadays, which is what, nearly 20 years past, I have to say that was probably one of the easiest steps. You know, for at least the last six years, you've been music director in Liverpool and Oslo at the same time, and also working with people like the National Youth Orchestra, who I'll come on to later. So you've had regular places that you visit. And I would imagine that means doing far less guest conducting than you would have done when you'd won Cadiz. What were those early experiences like doing lots and lots of different orchestras one week after another compared to, you know, the last few years when you've basically been, I would imagine, working a lot with two or three or four or five orchestras through the year? Uh, they, they are a bit different in the yeah. way that uh, obviously every orchestra has different mentality and uh, different approach, different sound, which reflects many things uh, around them. Yeah. As a guest, you can come and just do your week, try to do your best, uh, engage with the orchestra and then go to another one. Uh-huh. As it gives you a certain freshness, obviously, uh, and it also, you know, I always feel that uh, when we're playing the music, it's it's sharing ideas. Yes. It's not the singularity of your vision. You have your ideal music in your mind, uh, as I guess every conductor has this music sound in their minds. Mm. But uh, then again, it's the orchestra who plays the music. And quite often there are some different ideas, which is very valid. Mm. Uh, let's, you know, I always remember that none of conductors, I guess, maybe there's one or two exclusions, but none of the conductors can play the instrument at the same level as any of the orchestra musician. Mm. So it's them, it's their opinions, their views, and then you have to gel it. You have to make the orchestra sounds better. So when you go as a guest, you can you can feel this freshness. You're also discovering new ideas, new sounds, new things. Uh, but if you're working constantly with orchestra as a chief conductor, then you can go sometime more in depth. Mm. And what I found is uh, maybe that's with any orchestra. First, you work on the technical aspects. So you work about the attack articulation, about the time of it, about the general way how the string sounds, you know, what part of the bow, how much of vibrato. There's many technical things which you can develop in orchestra. And I think it's endless process. I don't think any orchestra can say that they're absolutely perfect, simply no. <laughs> because we all perfection is simply that even then something can be improved. And I think, again, this is probably lifetime endless process. 
Mm. So first you think on these technical things. Main, it may be like the rules of game. So how we approach this music, how we approach the first Vienna school, how we approach romantic music, how we approach neoclassical style, how we, are, how we basically agree to play the style of such and such composer. And then once it's done, it, it can take different time. Uh, once it's done, uh, you go into what's beyond the notes, what's mm -hmm. behind the notes. And then it became the sheer, sheer pleasure. So then I think you can, you can achieve so much because you don't, need to, you don't need to say that this staccato is short. You can say what the composer probably meant by this music. You go to emotions, you go to the characters, and to me it's much more valuable. Mm. The technical side is of course very important. I, you know, I, never, <laughs> I never give up on technical side. This moment of flight, it's, it's almost as if you're preparing the aircraft that everything works fine and then you're really flying it. Yeah. So this moment of flight is, uh, I think, very, very satisfactory. It can be achieved as a guest, but uh, it's, I think it's much more and much deeper you can achieve it uh, where, where you are chief conductor. Mm. Did you find guest conducting stressful? Um, what I mean by that is that Barbara Hannigan and I had a chat about first dates and about the fact that sometimes those first dates weren't brilliant and you didn't like the orchestra and they, they didn't like you. And, and, the, and the chances are that one of those might come around the corner at any time when you're guesting a lot. Did that happen to you uh, or did you find any of that stressful or were you just lapping it up and loving it? Uh, I, I don't feel it's stressful. You mean, uh, I feel it as a discovery and mm. uh, wherever I'm coming, uh, it's more of a curiosity. Yeah. Uh, and again, to me, life is a learning process. Probably full life will be a learning process. <laughs> To learn something new and to see how this or that orchestra is playing, it's, uh, it's, it, I find it's a very important and vital part of my life. Yeah. Uh, it does happen. Uh, I, I'm, I would say I'm very lucky. I can remember probably one or two cases over the last five or six years when yeah. right at the beginning you realize that uh, it's not gonna happen <laughs> yeah 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 i know yeah. but uh it's very very rare to me it's a more of a challenge uh of course the first 10 minutes are crucial yes yeah but to me it's more of a challenge of how much further uh we can go in recognition of each other with any orchestra mm. you know some of the orchestras have an incredibly proud uh, mentality some of the orchestras are different, they more discovery. I have to say uh, what I value in any orchestra, either as a guest or as a chief conductor, is curiosity. Mm. I think uh, once we stop being curious about the music, once we think that this music has to, play, have to be played only like that, then it's a dead art. Yes. So to me, what is very important is that musicians in the orchestra, and I'm trying to do it with myself, and I'm always you know, pushing myself into that territory. We are very curious how slightly different this piece can be done. Maybe there's a different ways of playing this or that music, still, of course, according to the composer's will. Mm. 
mm. and not changing the notes or the tempos, but maybe changing the phrasing sometimes, which is not indicated. So uh, there's many things which can be done slightly different in a concert. And uh, in a classical music, that's a difference, I think, between classical music and the pop music in general. Yes, very that much so. In, yeah. in classical music, there's never twice the same. Mm. So every time you perform pieces will be slightly or maybe very different from the previous time you have heard the piece. Because we're not uh, related to the boombox. We're not related to the electronic machines. And no, it's, it's true. And, and I'd like to, I'd love to hear other conductors talk about that level of spontaneity and that level of difference every time. Because that's what I love about great musicians and great music making is the fact that, you know, the analogy I use is if you come to a roundabout when you're driving, you don't always have to go round it left, you can go round it right, and you can sometimes go straight across the middle if you want to, um, but you still get to the, the end of the journey, and I, I think, you know, musically, we we have the ability unless, to, yeah. Unless you crash in the middle, yes. Well, yeah, well, that's what I was talking about. Sometimes the, those crashes happen, but yeah. I'm going to go on to the two jobs that you, you basically did for a, quite a while together, in Liverpool from 2006 until you finish at the end, some point next year, I think. And Oslo, you were there for six or seven years um, at the same time. With two great orchestras like that, what were the major differences in the way that they approached things? Uh, maybe you had a difference of approach with them. I don't think you probably would listening to you here and chatting. But what were the differences in the way that they played and the way that they worked and the way that you worked with them? I think the, the difference is in the society, first of all. You know, any yes. orchestra will reflect how, how is the society around them. Yeah. And obviously, English and Norwegian uh, mentality and the society is very different. Yeah. You know, in Norway, it's a socialism, uh, and a lot of power and the roles is uh, given to the players in the orchestra. For example, when I started, you cannot program any music without approval from the artistic committee in the orchestra. Huh, okay. So it, when you have done the programming for the season, you have to go through their approval. And mm. sometimes they approve, sometimes they don't. So you have to redo the stuff or reconsider the things. Uh, they, they're great people. They are incredible musicians and with a lot of knowledge and ideas. Uh, uh, but it takes a while mm. to do. And the whole society in uh, Norway based on the roundtable decisions. So any decision they take should pass the agreement from everyone on this roundtable. Mm. Uh, it takes maybe a bit longer to get approvals. However, uh, once it's done, everyone feels his personal responsibility mm. rather than in many other countries when it's just told what you have to do. And that's what... Uh, by some extent, is uh, in UK. So uh, when you're just told what you have to do, a lot of people, they don't feel this personal responsibility and they think that people who told them what to do, they're not very smart people. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's, there's a difference. There's also different in, uh, uh, I would say, in the way of life. Mm. Uh, English people much more extroverts than Norwegian people in their, in their lives. Uh, I think the climate also changed a little bit, the mentality. So there's many, many ways yeah. uh, of, you feel them, it's, it's more difficult to talk about them rather than, than sense and feel them. 
Mm. What is more important uh, is that both orchestras were sharing this uh, view and this passion uh, to supreme themselves mm. on the day-by-day -day basis to get better, to discover something new, to work hard. And that's for me, it's, it's a core of the work. That's every time, every day, we're trying to be better than we were yesterday. Yes. And tomorrow we will try to be better than we are today. Mm. Uh, so for me, in some ways, I think in the way of addressing things, uh, there might be some differences, obviously. But uh, most of the things we were doing and talking in the rehearsals and concerts, they were, quite, they were very similar. Um, I briefly want to talk about Liverpool more specifically and the fact that I've conducted that orchestra now approaching 100 times, virtually all um, family and schools concerts with Alistair Malloy, but also a few other things at Christmas and a couple of subscription things, which meant I've spent weeks there and I know, I know you live there. That city is so proud of its orchestra. It's you get in a taxi and ask where they ask where you're going. You're going to oh, I remember going to the Philharmonic Hall. They're incredibly proud of their orchestra. The civic pride in it. Don't you, do you think that really helps there? Um, I know some other cities have less pride in their orchestra, but in Liverpool they're really proud of that that orchestra there. I think for any orchestra, and especially in the future uh, to come. Mm. It is uh, incredibly important to have us strong and as close and as uh, mutually respected and beloved links with yeah. society as it is possible. Yeah. Yes, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, and this is actually the things which I'm always saying when I can, there's a difference between public for us and we for public. Mm. And it's fundamental difference. It's we for public. Mm. We, musicians, for public. It's not public who should worship us. Yeah. It's yeah. us. And initiative of getting closer, of embrace, should come from us, from musicians. In Liverpool, of course, there's this huge 176 years tradition uh, of the orchestra. And uh, it's not much else. So, you know, it's very peculiar that uh, there's a huge following for the orchestra but there's very little for the opera. Mm. Any opera projects, uh, there's some performances which Opera North bringing to Liverpool and some which Welsh National Opera is bringing, but very few, maybe five or six a year only performances, not titles. Yes, yeah. And wow. they're always struggling a little bit to sell tickets because uh, somehow people get this affection by the orchestra and by the local culture affection is the perfect word for silly because you know any time i've been there and as i said many 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 times my daughter also studied at the university there that they have they hold the orchestra in such affection maybe it stems from the fact that you know I we would do 10 schools concerts in a week and every every concert is sold out it's full which means that you're touching the lives of virtually every school child in Liverpool and Merseyside um, once a year at least. Um, and, you know, maybe it's from that. They all go, they've all been, uh, they've all, in fact, they're all invested in it somehow from an early age. Well, this is, uh, on one hand, uh, one of the things which I'm very proud that, uh, I wouldn't say I initiated, but I was in the beginning of uh, this agreement uh, between UK provincial orchestras, uh, uh, about maybe 10 years ago, we agreed about giving 
performance for free for every school child mm. in UK. And since then, I think something like 12 or 14 million children were through the concert halls. Yeah, which is amazing. So, yeah. so for that, it's investment in the future. And many, I, I had so many replies from the children from some schools, even here in the Wirral, in the, in the remote places, mm. who were saying that unless this program will be launched, we will never have a chance to visit any concerts because their parents are not interested whatsoever mm. in, in the classical music. So you give them a chance. So on one hand, I'm very glad that it was realized. On the other hand, I have to say that uh, in the educational system in UK, music have less and less place, sadly, in the, in the normal schools. Like singing in the school is not going anymore in most of the schools. Uh, playing musical instruments is facultative rather than it used to be almost mm. obligatory for everyone. And uh, just in general, knowledge about the culture and the music replaced now by the practical knowledge. So the knowledge about engineering or medicine, for instance. Because those uh, disciplines that require even, even more of studies as there's more and more depth in them. Mm. Uh, but I think that that's very dangerous. The country uh, will lose some of its culture simply because people are not given the information about it uh, from from the childhood. And I agree. I agree completely. Um, it's... Especially, yeah. in, Go on. <laughs> especially nowadays when, uh, you know, we will face a severe cuts. Yes. Uh, now it feels very difficult, but in the upcoming years, in terms of culture, there will be some severe cuts and drastic decisions taken. Mm. And... Uh, country face this potential loss of its huge heritage sadly i have to say even at a very top level uh, people can't understand or does not want to understand that uh, the arts organizations they not like restaurants mm. restaurants if you close it now which are with i mean the older restaurants or most of the restaurants are closed they yes. usually only take away but even if you furlough people, if you sack the people, then you can uh, reopen it when it's allowed. You can bring people to the kitchen and they'll cook the stuff. So, you know, you, if you have a recipes and if you have the right people, you will get the same dish, more or less. Yes. Rather than in the culture, there's so much will be lost. First of all, not all of the people will will come back. Secondary, you can't replace people because the qualification is very unique. Mm. And thirdly, uh, the loss of playing together and the loss of the organization in a whole will have such an impact on organizations who, which were here for hundreds of years that it will take another decades to get back to the level we were just a few months ago. Well, I think the, the time is is right now to for us in the classical music world or in the cultural world to, to point out that during this time music especially if we're going to be very very um, self-centered about this music has been a solace to people while during this lockdown and will continue to be a solace to people during this lockdown and you know it, unless people are careful when they go back um, you know, the, it'll go back to what it was, and people will stop caring about the music that they listen to, and stop. And and it must be pointed out that you know, without 
the musicians being musicians and orchestras existing in opera houses and whatever, this music will slowly and gradually die away. And I think it's an important thing that, that the, the classical music business should be shouting. Uh, you know, not only that, but mm. uh, the fact that every previous very difficult time, a lot of people now saying that this is a war against invisible enemy. So the fact that during the previous heavy periods, the First World War, Second World War in UK, and also in general in Europe, there was mm. so much attention to the culture, so many new things were created, and culture actually drove the recovery in many ways. That's right. So yeah. the people given happiness through their culture, and because of that, they were seeing the future as a bright future. They were seeing this optimism in the air. You know, World War One. There were Jagannath seasons all around the Europe. There were yes. so many things. You know, proms were, were, you know, the things were just flourishing in terms of that, with attention from the public and from the government. World mm. War II here, right after that, there were orchestras, new orchestras founded, Philharmonia, yes. Philharmonic orchestras, many other regional orchestras. Uh, Liverpool Philharmonic Hall was reopened. So there were many, many different things, and uh, I think it's in benefits of the society to do so in benefits of the future because that can ease many things in the upcoming years which will be incredibly tough for everyone yeah. however uh what have changed i think since is if let's say about 40s and 50s there were ideals about the country so the people were ready to give up their current for the future and if you think about now there's by far less of that. There's mm. this monetarism, there's this cons consumerism, and everybody wants everything here and now, rather than thinking about what, what will be there and tomorrow. Mm. And this sense that without helping something, there might be not tomorrow. You've actually led perfectly into my next question, actually, Vasily, which is work, looking at the working for tomorrow, which is the fact that you worked for five years with the National Youth Orchestra and also a principal conductor of the European Union Youth Orchestra, or chief conductor. And working with youth orchestras seems to be an important thing for you. Uh, is it mainly for the reasons you're talking about now? But what also, what else do you get out of it personally as a conductor? Plenty of things. You know, yeah. uh, it, there's, there's a few points which... Uh, to me, it's very important. First of all, yeah. uh, it's a freshness of approach to the music for yes. musicians. You know, yeah. Most of them, you perform, I don't know, first mother or fifth mother symphony, which in professional orchestra, when you're coming, most of the players play maybe 30 or 40 times at least during yeah. their lives. That's right, yeah. When you're coming to the youth orchestras, vast majority played for the very first time. Yeah. And this approach you know, that they really feel that this is here and now for them, it's the first time, nothing can replace it, honestly. No, no you're you, right. Yeah. You sense it in the sound, you sense it in their approach. They always give themselves completely. They give 100% and every single minute. Mm. But on the other side, you also have to work much harder. Mm. Working with a youth orchestra is actually harder than working with professional orchestra because they will never forgive you if you don't give them this <laughs> 200 time. Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> you also have to think about how you're addressing the things. You, you have to find the language, which mm. will be, you know, I don't think you should go to this you know, 
youth language to yeah. go to the slang of the teenagers, let's put it mildly. Yeah. But you have to address some things uh, on the way that they understand it very quickly and uh, in a very singular way that you don't give a double meanings in some, in some moments. And uh, to me, the other thing is you, you see the progress, which is incredible. You start uh, with a group of extremely talented individuals and they play really well as individuals. Mm. And then within a week or two weeks, depends on the project, you, you feel like from those individuals, you suddenly have a team, incredible team. You, f you feel like this teamwork is born and the collectiveness is born. And uh, the progress you can get from day one to day seven or day 14 is a progress which you will never experience in a professional orchestra, I think. No, I Simply because, yeah. because of their experience scheme and etc. The biggest reward for me is, of course, apart from the concerts, is to see uh, most of the people later on in a couple of years, yeah. professional yeah. around the Europe uh, and everywhere. And I have to say there's almost every orchestra I'm going in Europe uh, and beyond uh, now has someone with whom I performed in the EUIO or with National Youth Orchestra a few years ago, yeah. is to see that uh, there is a future, there is desire to be the orchestra musician and uh, to see that those people, they're fulfilling their dreams from young age into at least the middle age. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a system to learn it? And when you learn new music, um, do you write things in your scores? Do you have a system? Or are you like some other conductors, you prefer your scores to be completely blank? Uh, a bit of both, to be honest. Uh, the readings, I, I literally, with a new score, I just read it. Mm. And with any score, you know, my preference is, it's like you're reading a book. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and the difference I think between reading a book or listening uh, to the play, for instance, is that when you're reading a book, you can imagine the personages yourself. You mm. can imagine their voices. You can imagine their articulation. You can imagine imagine where what is the emotional color of uh, this or that phrase. Mm. When you're listening to the play, you may agree or disagree with how the play is done. However, you have someone else's vision. Yeah. So to me, it's very important to read the score first. Then, uh, usually listening, if they are, exist for various recordings, uh, never one, but many, yeah. three, three, five, several, mm -hmm. and decide what, what from which recording might be useful. You know, sometimes nothing, uh, in my opinion. It doesn't <laughs> mean that they are bad recordings. No, it's no. Just my view on the music is quite different from those recordings. Uh, and then I do some markings, but uh, it's it's a bit strange because you know I don't have like this is the constant system. Mm. Sometimes I feel that something needs to be marked. Uh, Sometimes it's especially in a school where the measure size change in every measure. Mm. Yeah. So then uh, then you have to mark, I think, more often because you know, when you're rehearsing, you obviously have your attention to many other things rather than just this measure change. 
and uh, it is your visual perception of the score. But sometimes I prefer not to have the markings. And actually, in the scores which I'm using second or third time, quite often I'm scrubbing out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm just erasing them because that gives you more freedom in a way, more mm. understanding of well, what you want right now and right here. Vasily, it's time for the 10 questions. And I will start with a, the first question, which is what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sounds of nature. Right now, when we're talking to you, I, I'm still hearing the birds singing in my garden. Mm. And I, I dislike uh, the industrial noises. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I love fishing. If you would ask me half a year ago, I would say you're sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as now I had plenty of sleep over yeah. the last several weeks, that's out of the map. Maybe if you will ask me in about two years, I will answer again, sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> and when you say fishing, are you course fishing by a river or out at sea? Anything. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? Uh, I always had many conductors of the previous years, to be honest. You know, mm. I never had one uh, who would be my hero of the previous years. I have so many, you yeah. know, from Weber, Karajan, Bernstein, to Mravinsky or Kondrashen. We, we had so many great predecessors uh, that to see or to hear their performances, you can learn from each one. Uh, and who would be a favorite current conductor? It's a tough one because, you know, I would, I would answer uh, such way, the conductor whom I'm listening now. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Uh, there's some work which somehow uh, have, I think, coincidence okay. uh, with my uh, life or life of uh, people of my relatives. Uh, it's Shostakovich's 15th symphony. Mm. When uh, I've conducted it for the first time many years ago, my grandmother has died. Uh -huh. uh, and when I conducted it uh, maybe seven or eight years after, my mother was diagnosed leukemia. Oh, and so dear. she died a few years after. I'm sure it's coincidence. And you know, since I've recorded this piece, I've not conducted it though in a concert, but I've recorded it. Mm. I'm not afraid of it, but it is just happened. Talking about the hardest piece in, uh, in terms of understanding, I found for the first time one of the hardest pieces was Parsifal. Okay. Because yeah. uh, it's a very, I mean, it's a long Wagner opera. I think it's, to me personally, it's the most ingenious Wagner opera. I, I, I love the Ring, obviously, and uh, Meister Zingers and the other operas as well. No, Tristan is most revolutionary one, but I think Parsifal is most, most ingenious. Technically, for a conductor, it's not the most challenging comparing mm -hmm. to some of his other operas. However, once you learn the music, uh, you start to think what to do with it, where, mm -hmm. to, where to go. And it's, uh, he called it you know, spiritual drama, mm -hmm. and it's true. And to make it uh, real really spiritual and to make the music sound organic that took me quite a while mm. uh, i have to say probably that's the longest time i learned the same score in my life 
When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? It's in, it, it's interesting. The score probably. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But uh, not 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 really. You know, I I can't imagine anything what cannot be left behind. You know, mm. I think if something cannot be left behind, then it's the piece who owns you. It's mm. not you own the piece. So in terms of the the pieces, any physical pieces, I don't think there should be anything which you cannot left behind. Mm. You should value everything, but and you sh you have to feel this emotional attachment to anything. But once something you definitely think you cannot leave behind, this something owns you. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> true. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Have more rehearsals. <laughs> As an ex or ex orchestral violinist, uh, I'm not sure every orchestral musician would agree with you there. But sometimes, as a conductor, I do agree with you. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oof! I would phrase what profession are we all made to attempt in the future. <laughs> but. Yes. Uh, I, you know, from the very, uh, there were two uh, passions uh, in my life when I was a child. Mm. Uh, first uh, was swimming, and I was a professional swimmer as a, ch as a child. And there was even the moment when I had a choice to continue with music, uh, doing it six uh, or seven days a week as, as a young pupil, or mm. to continue with the swimming, being six or seven days a week in the pool. Mm. Uh, it was like pre-Olympic team of youngsters. I mean, are we talking when I was 11 or 12 years old? And, I, and that's when your body starts to grow. And yes. I decided to go on music because uh, I felt that's probably one of the few wise uh, thoughts which I had. <laughs> uh, I felt that if I would be swimmer by 30 years old, I will be finished. So I'll yeah. probably be spend the rest of my life by training the other people in the swimming pool, if the best. You know, a lot of uh, Olympic sportsmen, they ending quite badly, especially in Russia, simply because there's not enough attention to their faith, mm. or used to be in Soviet Union. So I decided to go to music. So, you know, I may have been a swimmer. And the other passion which I always had was maths. And uh, I was always studying maths uh, about two or three years ahead of the class. So probably I would be in some profession uh, related to mathematics, investor, the banker, you know, yeah. <laughs> maybe something, something huge and much more income generating than, than a conductor. Well, now could be your time. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. We're all facing a little bit of unknown right now. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Uh, bread and water. It's good. It's pretty much what Daniel Harding said. Well, uh, you know, the explanation be behind it is because, uh, first of all, we don't need more, uh, especially when it's, when it's over. You cannot bring it with you. And the, sec the secondary is that uh, this is where it started. Um. I have to say that through a wonderful hour's chat between a Liverpool fan and a Manchester United fan, we've not had any bust-ups, uh, and it's been a really, really enjoyable time. Thank you, Vasily, and I hope to see you very soon. Thank you, Michael. I, I hope so, too. I hope we will get to the 
up and share a glass, <laughs> a couple of glasses of beer without any fear, probably watching some interesting football game. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I talk to a conductor who most of you will have never heard of, but because his career has included working on over 200 movies, billions of people worldwide will have heard his work. Until then, bye-bye.